Welcome to episode 86 of Americans Watching the Footy. The two most important things we learned this week. My brother may be psychic, and Collingwood still have a chance. Ethan and Benjamin Castle are Americans. Watching the footy. Liam Ryan saying kick it my way, I want to jump over the pack and here he comes! Yeah, I've kind of done this a few times, and I'm glad it got on air, because I remember before round one, I was going to talk about Carlton and Richmond, like, one of them has to not lose, or like, one of them has to win, right? And then nobody won. We talked about that after the fact, but you you actually had this one on air, it was near the very end of the episode, there was a YouTube short up now with the quote, and we'll talk about it when we get to that game. By the way... He's Ethan, I'm Benjamin, welcome. Together we are Americans watching the footy. We're recording this a little over an hour after round four ended. We don't usually have this quick of a turnaround, but considering it's already Monday, we figured we might as well. Yeah, it means things are going to be a little bit different. Our stats for the very last game may not be exact. Hopefully we get some stat corrections because I'm currently down eight points in my uh, fantasy matchup. I'm down 23 and that's self-inflicted. Actually, well, partially, a concussion is also... Now I'm down five, so hopefully there's more corrections coming. But um, if if I had played Sam Draper over Riley O'Brien, I would have won. How about we go into the first game by saying this? I played Dan McStay and sat Cam Rayner. Whoops. Okay, the Pies still have a chance. Yeah, true. Uh, let me preface this by saying I genuinely love Brian Taylor. The enthusiasm he has for the game is something that you don't really see in a lot of American broadcasters. Like, the only one that I can think of that has anywhere near close to his love for the game that he calls is Gus Johnson. Also, happy birthday, BT, as we are currently recording this. He turned 61 today. Did they even mention it on the broadcast? They did, I think. Sometime in the second half, they did. Okay, good. I also love the... Good bounce, the wowies, the fascination that people have relatives. But this broadcast was just a Collingwood love fest, which was insane when Brisbane kicked their asses start to finish pretty much. Outside of the first quarter, I guess. But Brisbane 18-8-116, defeating Collingwood 11-17-83. And it's funny because a couple weeks ago, I was talking about how Sometimes you don't need a true Ruckman, and uh, Collingwood proved they do need one. I think it was especially because they were matching up against Oscar McInerney, and his ability outside of the direct Ruck contest demands somebody who could play up to his size directly on him, and so that makes the matchup difficult for someone like Dan McStay or Billy Frampton, who are, who are both definitely slider or frame. And it also just messed up Collingwood's structure. You could tell that they were missing 
McStay as a forward target, especially with, you know, Darcy Cameron and Mason Cox obviously not being there. Cox still has a hematoma that he's dealing with, bleeding on his spleen. And then Cameron had that high-grade MCL sprain. Yeah, put them in a pretty tough spot. They started well, though. The early early pace suited them, but pressure kind of went back and forth between which team was asserting it. And then by quarter time, Brisbane really answered with their own pressure in the forward two-thirds. They didn't have the depth to lock down Collingwood's movement at first, but Cam Rayner ended up dominating this game. And I'll just say that now, and I can see a world in which he doesn't get a single Rambo vote for it. Yeah, now we are not jumping on Nick Dacos for that one contest he went for where he kind of backed out. He still had a damn good game, but when push came to shove, when the game was decided, he was not there. It's not so much that, it's just he was not one of the three best players, and he's going to get Brownlow votes as if he was, when the three best players in this game were pretty clearly Rayner, Charlie Cameron, and Oscar McInerney. Debate for Joe Danaher to sneak into there too, maybe along just, with along with Big O, and I think that's the big case for that is that obviously McInerney didn't have that sort of competition. But when do Rucks have double digit clearances? Especially nice for Danaher to respond with a good game, considering it was yeah, it's it's no longer let's pick on Joey week. Yeah, he he needed that game. So Danaher and Hipwood both much more active. Hipwood still not quite there. Kicking for goal, but just greater involvement in general. And then, really, from the second quarter on, with that change, there was the change in pressure when Brisbane were without the ball. And then, when they were with it, they kind of let Collingwood play into their hands. There was some really good feedback after the game. I was watching the Fox Footy broadcast afterward while I was eating breakfast on Thursday because I was working at 7 a.m. And that game finished a little after five, so it's not like I was going to go back to sleep. And Jason Dunstall pointed out that Brisbane creating turnovers allowed them to push through some of Collingwood's threats. Eight of Brisbane's 18 goals were off turnovers compared to just two for Collingwood. And Lee Montagna pointed out that because that whatever Collingwood and Lee Montagna pointed out that Collingwood are so quick to get numbers around the ball defensively that. When the Lions managed to win enough contests, they would handball and kick over the top, and that would make Collingwood pay for just the way they play. Admittedly, the Pies did have some chances to get back in it in the second half as that 10-goal run was occurring. I will say this. I paid much more attention to the game with the margin where it was than I would if any team other than Collingwood was trailing by that because of what they've done last year, but... There were only a couple moments where it seemed like, okay, they've really got a path here because they never could really get it closer than that about five goal, 30 point margin. But the, there were there were three misses on makeable shots that I pointed out that were really looming large because the Lions scored the next goals after all three of them. There was one from Jamie Elliott near the start of the third quarter where Collingwood finally got a full run, but Elliott hit the inside of the post. And these are what you refer to as 11-point swings, right? Yes, these are 11-point swings. And there were three of them. Yes, so there was Elliott near the start of the third quarter. There was another one a few minutes later. And the next goal ended up being one of Charlie Cameron's six. A few minutes later, Nick Dacos hit the post. And Cam Rayner 
got a free kick after that for his fourth, and that was the 10th in a row for the Lions. And then the last of them was when, and then the last of them was when Jordan Degoe missed her advantage after Brandon Starcevich was caught holding the ball. Charlie Cameron scored the next goal once again. By that point, it was late third quarter. It was a six-goal game. And even though Collinwood had improved off stoppages in the third quarter compared to compared to the first half, it was close to over by then. Even though it was 36 points, you had to have that feeling, right? Which play was that? It, just in general, even though it was 36 points by then, yeah. Yeah, it it felt like a couple times Collingwood were a play away from really making things interesting, but it never really happened. The thing I really noticed was they let forwards leak out the back against them a lot, which they don't usually do. That was very, very strange. And that's why I pointed out what Dunstall and Montagna said in the postgame. I, I didn't expect it to affect their last lines of defense, though. Just lines counteracted the swarming around the, the ball by getting, by kind of swarming forward, I guess. And maybe Frampton not being back there sometimes with the spot ruck work he had compromised some of that structure as well. I don't think it was that notable, though, because Ash Johnson ended up taking the second most contests. And I like Ash Johnson in the ruck because that athleticism is really fun. But it's going to be difficult for Collinwood because they've got another pretty strong ruckman that they'll be facing next week in the Gather Round. Oh, yeah. For our Gather Round preview and recap, we are going to keep a tally on the number of times we use the Gather Round sound effect. We're not doing it for this round, but that's just an indication. The three right there are kind of kind of hinting at what's to come. I honestly think we might not use it that much because we're we're going to be in the midst of the Gather Round. You know, we're not talking about something that's I don't know. I might make an effort to use it more. Alright, have fun with that, Ethan. Sorry, that's just my Geelong one beer. I'm not sure hopefully that comes across well. You know, beer is ninety percent water, but the other ten percent is pure delicious beer. The Lions are two and two now. Both their wins are over really good teams, but they've looked pretty terrible away from their own ground. And that's why I'm not convinced yet. Both those really good teams that they played, they've got reverse fixtures against them. They've got Melbourne at the G round 18. They've got Collingwood at Marvel round 23. Now, we know what happened when Brisbane played Collingwood most recently at Marvel, but I'm not sure if I'm going to be really convinced that Brisbane are there for this year until we see those Victorian wins again, just the out-of-state success. Because a lot of their toughest parts of the schedule happen to come in Queensland. I will say this, I thought their defense was not as good as I had hoped, but it was better. I still think we're waiting on Kadeen Coleman to really take his game to a new level, but I did like what I saw out of Brandon Starcevich, and I thought Harris Andrews had a really nice game, which they need more and more of, especially just Marcus Adams left a really big hole. Andrews and Adams were a really good tandem. They each kind of covered for each other's mistakes, and you can see how they lack that right now. What's amazing looking at the, st looking at the stats for this one is how much the new Lions ended up controlling the ball. Will Ashcroft led the way with 26 disposals for the Lions, and insane how quickly he fits in there. Just so seamless. Josh Dunkley had 25 and 7 clearances. Also with seven clearances, and with 22 disposals was Lockie Neal. Jared Berry kicked 1-1 from 21. 
Joe Danaher kicked two goals from 20. Big O, 43 hitouts, and a decent amount of them were to advantage. Again, hitouts are often just, you know, fantasy stats. It's to advantage and the clearances off them that really matter, but um, he had 11 of those. So good work, Oscar. And the big scorers, Cam Rayner with 4-1 from 17 disposals and 10 score involvements. Charlie Cameron, 6-1 from 14 and 11 score involvements. On the Collingwood side... Oh, actually, I'll do the team stat first. Yeah, back to... Yeah, McInerney was the biggest reason the Lions won the hitouts 47-23. to It felt more lopsided than that. It also felt like they won clearances by much more than 9, 46-37. to It was... They were plus 12 on stoppage clearances, 34-22. to It was mostly in the second quarter that those margins were accumulated, especially in terms of clearances. Nick Dacos did have a really nice game overall, but I just don't think he was one of the three most impactful players. I mean, if you want to give him one vote, I guess, but I'd rather give it to one of the three Brisbane players that won him that game because it did not feel like, oh, wow, he's really keeping them afloat. Whereas, like, I think of how Jeremy Cameron played against Carlton, and it's like, that was a Brownlow vote-worthy performance in a loss. Two or maybe even three. Hey, if, think about what happened last year. Patrick Cripps won because he was best on ground in a loss. Anyway, Dacos kicked 2-2 with 38 disposals, 12 score involvement, 633 meters gained. Again, he was very good. My argument is just there are three players on the other side that were better. Maybe even four. Scott Pendlebury, 26 disposals. Braden Maynard, 25 disposals and 582 meters gained. Embarrassing fact, it took me a while to learn that meters gained could be accumulated on your kicks and not just while you actually ran with the ball. I learned this like late last year. Jordan Ngoi, a goal and a behind on 21 disposals. Isaac Quinn are one of the bright spots in an otherwise difficult game for the Collingwood defense with 20 disposals and 10 intercepts. From Holy Thursday, we move to Good Friday, and I am glad that this ended up being such a fun environment for this game. Yeah, even though the game itself kind of fell apart in the second half, the fact is there were nearly 50,000 at Marvel, biggest crowd at Marvel in a decade, 49,062. And one of those people was Sonia Hood. I mean, she probably wasn't counted in the attendance as she probably didn't have to buy a ticket. Actually, yeah, good point. But we needed seven more in attendance. Would have been nice. But just to see more than like 33,000 at Marvel for any occasion is good. And to see the upper deck like jam fucking packed was awesome. I mean, there were like a few empty seats in the second level in what I assume is some sort of club area. And other than that, it was pretty much full. And even though... North fell off in the second half, just not having the defense to keep up because Ben Mackay was too busy playing as Harry Mackay. The The fact is, they proved, like, this is our day, this is our event, even though Collingwood fans made up probably half the crowd. Carlton. Even though Carlton fans probably made up half the crowd. The fact is, this was a fun event and not just, and didn't just leave you thinking, like, why do they get to play on this day instead of somebody else. North 11-18-84, defeated by Carlton 16-11-107. North led by a goal at quarter time. They led by two at halftime. And then Carlton scored six goals to one in the third to really open it up. Again, at that point, you could tell kind of you could tell the gap in experience in some areas, especially in the defensive 50. 
you wouldn't look at North North's list and say, yeah, Aiden Bonner's the one that I'm going to put on Charlie Curnow, no questions asked. And I mean, Curnow could have a great day against anyone, but will certainly helped by not having as strong competition. Outside of the defense, Nick Larky got banged up pretty early on, and you could tell that he wasn't running at 100%. And they were undone by their kicking and accuracy as well. Cam Zerhar seemed to be everywhere, but he ended up kicking 3-4 and had a complete miss as well. The biggest and thing... And look, North had two more scores than Carlton. This game could have been in their grasp before. And yeah, it's only a 23-point margin, but a few of those last ones were added on pretty late once we'd gotten junk time. The lead was as big as, I believe, I believe 46 was the largest lead. So... Yeah, Carlton ran away with it, but remember last year, I think it was David King asking, like, why are we congratulating North for hanging with Melbourne for a half? This was different because for a half, it's not just that they were in front, it's that they showed, like, a real model to follow where, you know, their midfield, the Davies, Uniac, and Simkin combination looks like two midfielders that can absolutely dominate a game. And you could tell how much they were missed the previous week as well. And also they were just taking the game on physically. And that's not something we saw from them last year. They're still in a position where they need Jaden Stevenson, who's wildly inconsistent to be consistently good. And that's just not going to happen. He was proficient in this game, a, a bit above proficient, I'd say. Yeah, but they need him to be in his best form. And that comes like maybe once every six weeks. Just again, if you have Ben Mackay, well, that would mean also, the Carlton don't have Harry Mackay because, again, they're the same person. You'd never see them in the same place at the same time. And again, also, remember, Logue was suspended for a bump of Will Day. Now, I don't know how Logue matches up in this, but he would have helped. Just from a skill level, it, w it would have been better. It would have given you more adults in the room, to borrow that term. Um, when, it comes to, when it comes to Carlton's success outside of their two colon medalists who combined for 10 goals... I noticed Adam Chera doing more work on the inside, which you don't normally expect from him, but that ended up being definitely a net positive. Now, we won't need to do that as much pretty soon because it sounds like Sam Walsh and Matthew Kennedy should be back next week. Well, this week, this Thursday for the opener against the Crows. That's a pretty mouth-watering opener, honestly. I think that might actually be the most exciting game of this upcoming round now with Richmond's injuries. I mean, Collingwood, St. Kilda, you never thought you'd be excited about that. That's a, that's a Jimmy Rustler. Maybe Power and Bulldogs is a bit of a uh, giblet tickler. Man, you're not excited about the Castle Cup? I mean, you, you should I, be. I want to be, but I'm not getting ahead of myself. But back to this game, Cheryl was strong on the inside, and that helped them translate from some clearances, which they were which they start to get more of in the second half. Really, late third quarter, they finally clicked and finally started scoring from clearances, and that helped them really blow the game open late third, early fourth, because it took until there were under eight minutes left in the third quarter for either team to have a lead greater than 10. I want to give some extra recognition to Mitch McGovern, who mm -hmm. round one looked pretty shaky early on. Since then, has really settled in. I think as teams make more of a concerted effort to avoid Jacob Wietering. He's got to keep doing that. He did get banked up a little bit near the end, got subbed off for Jack Carroll, but I think that was purely precautionary, and I hope that's the case. Because I like Mitch McGovern, not just because his brother is an eagle, but just 
not a player that I appreciated right away. And I think it just once he moved to halfback, he just found another level. Also, I want him to be healthy because you need your full defense to take on the Crows forwards. And I would prefer the Crows to win just off of which team I like more. But I want that game to be good. And if McGovern was injured, hypothetically, it would make that game a bit less enticing, which I don't want. In general, Carlton looked hesitant to take on the game at first to pressure in the midfield. And once they did that, most other success translated from there. And they looked hesitant at times in each of the first few rounds. So hopefully this hopefully this is something that turns the tide for them in general. And I think Michael Walsh will see that and press that upon them. I also want to mention one last positive North thing. Now, he's not exactly like a, you know, take on a big physical guy, defender, but Harry McCann. But Harry Sheasel still played his ass off. There was one play that just blew me away where he was like on the ground and managed to handball out of pressure sometime in the second half when Carlton were starting to pour it on. They were attacking like right to left on screen. And was that another one on on a, on a left side goal line? I think so. I just remember saying like, OK, clearly you don't need to eat leavened bread to be good at football because that would have been in the middle of day two of Passover. Yeah. Because as we're recording this, it's, I guess, the end of night five, start of day five. Yeah. Because Sunday night, Monday morning. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So, so yeah, Harry Sheasel, again, he's not the type of defender that's going to win those one-on-one marking contests. But you know what? He knows that. He applies himself in the right areas. And he's just got such good instincts. He's so quick. Carlton stats for this game. Patrick Cripps, a behind, 30 disposals, 9 clearances, and 8 score involvements. He's still playing nowhere near as far up the ground as he did last year, but still impacting the game quite well. I think next week we're going to start seeing more of that impact further down the field once they have Sam Walsh into the mix, especially. Zach Fisher, 28 disposals. Mitch McGovern, 27 disposals, 11 intercepts. Adam Saad, woof. 25 disposals, 8 intercepts. That's a reversal. You usually do the barking. Lewis Young, 22 disposals and 10 marks. Charlie Curnow, 6-2 with 16 disposals and 9 marks. Harry Mackay, 4-1 on 16 disposals and 14 marks. And, you know, it was usually like a big authoritative I'm here mark. And either it led to him kicking for goal or steadying up someone else and just kind of he was able to like play the game in a in a slower fashion, and I and also yeah, some of those I'm here marks that didn't translate to goals were were because he's still having that midfield marking role that I really like from him, but like he's able to slow things down while Pernell plays better in a faster game, and to have both, I mean, those two just play off each other so well. They really complement each other and. So many ways. And then Jacob Wietering, 15 disposals and 12 marks. Again, teams are playing to avoid him, but it's just like, he's one of those guys, every possession he gets is an enjoyable one to watch. Like, I, I put him in that same category as like Matt Rowell, where it's like, I like watching him with the ball. He doesn't ever make you go like, what the fuck are you doing? By the way, Jesse Motlop didn't have a huge stat line, but had a really nice game once again. Even if the numbers don't reflect it, he's such a good spark for everything offensively that just once he gets involved, 
it leads to a goal. Whether he's touching the ball or just drawing attention away from somebody else, he is so fun to watch. I feel like even most Collingwood supporters would have to be like, yeah, this guy's this guy's pretty good. I, I would enjoy that guy on my team. Harry Sheasel set a new career high in Game 4 with 37 disposals. He also had 8 score involvements. Luke Davies-Uniak had 30 disposals. Jai Sipkin, 29 with 11 score involvements. Jack Zeba also with 29. At the end of the day, you didn't expect North to end up winning this game, I think. And I'm glad they had the fight for as long as they did. I wish it was able to last for a little longer. But the reasons they fell were ultimately pretty understandable. And they, had, they showed a blueprint. They know what their strengths are. As a fan of a team with a not great midfield, which is, I, which, which is crazy to say, I'm scared of the having the TB's Uniac and Simpkin can reek. I really like those two. And I think the, I think really a lot of the North list is really enjoyable. And just they're understanding where their strengths are and playing to them. And as long as they don't just like get the shit knocked out of them in the coming weeks and just look like a competitive team, I think they'll be making steps in the right direction. Remember I said, like, I want to see Clargo and the whole team just kind of look engaged and never really quit. And I think, I don't think they quit in this game. I think they just got out-talented. Out-talented like Frio got out-talented. I've got a lot of opinions about Frio that we're about to get into. So this may take a bit longer than most games of this margin, but... um. Adelaide 17-9-111, defeating Frio 10-12-72. We shaved our balls for this, didn't we, Ethan? Yeah, I looked at this as, like, the best game of the round. I expected Frio to be able to build a bit off what they did in the Derby. Now, again, it wasn't a convincing win until the Eagles ended up having no bench, but they ended up having to respond to the pressure that West Coast brought with their own and speeding up their movement and I thought that was going to reactivate something in them that we saw last year. Instead, Freeze Mantle returned slow-mo Frio. And it just didn't make sense to me. How is that going to work against a team that could pounce on you with the forward group that the Crows have? A group that is known and has been known even before this for the pressure that they're willing to put on. The addition of Isaac Rankin just puts them over the top in that regard. I loved the identity that Frio took on last year, and they have abandoned that. They're just trying to be a normal football team, and with the list they have, that does not work. This was a really disappointing showing, giving up 37 in the first quarter, 64 in the first half. This is a team that's supposed to thrive on defense, and they were just passive. They didn't take the game on like they usually do. They didn't make it a speed-based game, and they just got overwhelmed to their own 50. It was really disappointing. And they also were just having trouble fielding the ball. And it didn't really. No, that, that's what did it mean last year. But they couldn't find rhythm because they couldn't field the ball. And it ended up being that simple for a lot of it. You look at the efficiency they had. I noted that both teams had 12 inside 50s the first quarter. Disposal efficiency, a good 16% different. Fremantle 41.7, Adelaide 58.3. We've talked about a few players in particular on both teams that we've really liked and really haven't liked, and we were right about all of them when it came into this game. We have smarted Justin Longmuir and his staff, and I think Justin Longmuir is really smart and usually teaches me things that I don't know, and 
this time and said we saw obvious things that weren't obvious to him somehow? Like, how had it not been obvious to him that Bailey Banfield belongs in the 18, not just the 22, but the 18? You look at his output, you look at his stats, he scores better, is more efficient when he's in there the full game, which I find interesting that even with being those fresh legs of the second half, he doesn't have that same sort of impact. And then we've been on Liam Henry and Nathan Wilson's case for a while. Same with Matt Taverner. Now, Taverner is going to be out next round, we know, because he's got a disc injury. So maybe that was part of the matter already for him. Okay, he's just, as I've said, he's 29, but he's got the body of a guy way older than that. And, you know, it's a great what could have been if he had stayed healthy. I mean, he's currently at 167 goals in 120 games, and I think he could be far beyond that if he had stayed healthier, both in terms of number of games played and number of goals. Like, he could be he could be around 200 games, and he could probably be in the three to 400 goal range if he had been healthier, because we've seen what he looks like at his best. So it's an unfortunate circumstance. He's a very talented individual with a body that just can't keep up, which sucks. And you see this in all sports, especially like baseball with pitchers more than anywhere. It's it's like that. Uh, Liam Henry just doesn't know how to use the ball. Had a couple goals, one of which I thought came after the final siren, but didn't really matter anyway. Uh, managed the people who took Adelaide by 40, and apparently a lot did. But even with, even with his scoring touch, I'm not a fan of just his decision-making in general. And I think sometimes he kind of gets in the way of Banfield being more prominent. You want to talk about some positives, though? You want to talk about some Crows positives? Yeah, Riley Thilthorpe and Lachlan Gallant. I mean, Gallant just constantly sets guys up really well. Ended up getting a couple kicks for goal himself. Gallant had two goals, and Thilthorpe didn't score until late, but he did little things right throughout the game. Was spending more time in the ruck, which meant O'Brien stayed fresher as well. And I remember them saying on the broadcast, Taylor Walker was talking about how Phil Thorpe is the best tall he's ever seen below his knees. You know, getting to ground, getting possessions that way. And that was on display in this one. He crumbed off a pack low to the ground to end up setting up a passage that ended in, guess what, a Lockie Gallant goal. Before that, earlier on, after a stint of the ruck, he had a tackle of Alex Pierce that kept the ball free. That led to an Isaac Rankin goal. I don't think people have taken notice to those non-kicking-for-goal aspects of Phil Thorpe's game, especially because the things that you think of immediately when you hear Riley Phil Thorpe's name are, he scored five on debut, he scored two goals over his head, he scored five in showdown. He's able to bring a different type of physicality than most forwards, the way he's built. I'm not gonna anoint the Crows just yet. If they play well against Carlton... I'll be really impressed, but my big takeaway from this game was unfortunately just how disappointing Frio was and how they've, instead of built off what they did last year, taken steps backward and abandoned the identity that made them so good. And I know Patrick Dangerfield before today had caught a lot of crap for his performance at captain, but what the fuck has Alex Pierce done? I don't know, his hands have not been good. His everything hasn't been good. It's almost like he's been trying to think too much on the field. I'm not seeing an instinctual game from him. He should just let his natural talent take over at times. He looks and is playing a lot older than 27. And no, it, I think a lot of it's from upstairs. You know, giving up Blake Akers for nothing was stupid. 
giving up Logan Tucker. We can judge that in a few years. I expected them to take a bit of a step back from last year. Not nearly this much. Yeah, not not like this. This has been this has been really upsetting because they were such an enjoyable team to watch and they had this specific style figured out with their personnel and they're showing clearly that that personnel isn't meant to play everybody else's style. They didn't concede 100 points all of last year. They've already done it through four rounds this year. And Adelaide ended up being the team that played more like 2022 Frio than Frio did, honestly, with at least defensively. On the forward side, Adelaide still did, you know, the more conventional stuff, feed the big guns. Was good to see Taylor Walker finally play a quality game because he had been pretty invisible, which, like, considering the numbers they had put up offensively against GWS and Port, it's like, all right, they're showing they can play without Walker doing big things, which is great for their future, but they also still need him to contribute this year. Walker had four goals straight. Isaac Riken had 3-2 off 15 disposals. Jake Saligo had two goals, and Victoria and media were going nuts about him touching an umpire. He ended up getting a fine for that. Had it been Toby Green, it would have been a lifetime ban. Big possession getters for Adelaide. Rory Laird had 28. Jordan Dawson, 27. He had a goal and gained 598 meters. That full field game from Dawson was there again, and he was actually the best on the ground, I'd say, in this one. Yeah, it made no sense for him to get that award last week. Ned McHenry had 22 and 10 score involvements, an active third quarter in particular for him. He and Chase Jones have probably both cemented their spot in the lineup for a bit. Jones with 21 disposals. I like the roving halfback work he does. Joshua Shelley, somehow forgotten all this that he had, that he had three goals from his 20 disposals. Just that's how dominant it was that I forgot about one of the, one of the most important pocket players in the league. I think so long as he stays healthy, you can pencil him in on not just this year's 22 under 22, but, or, or maybe the league at 23 under 23 now? I don't know. Whatever it is, you can pencil him in on any sort of young stars team for multiple years to come. He's not even 20 yet. Yikes. He's really good. And I know it's hard to compare him to Nick Martin because they're kind of different players, but... I kind of associate the two because Martin undeservingly got the rising star for round one last year when it should have been Rochelle. They're both really good players, but thankfully Rochelle got his nod at some point. But yeah, I Martin's also a couple years older, but I've really liked Rochelle from day one. Martin had a good game this week too. I'll get to that later, but yeah. yeah. Josh Rochelle, good. Riley Philthorpe had a goal from 18 disposals and nine marks. One of those games that just supersedes what the actual stat line is. Like, you just, you noticed what he did. That's why I I mentioned him before this. And also, Max Michelani, 16 disposals, 10 intercepts, has that knack for starting rebound play, just judges contests really well, loving the early signs from him. He looks like he belongs and slotted in right away from being a first-rounder. Courageous as all hell, we saw that last week with with how he took on Todd Marshall and ended up getting back up from that. He's 191 centimeters, but for some reason he strikes me as being even bigger just because of the way he plays. They're starting to find a core defensively. Jordan Butts had a nice game. I know you've really liked him. And Tom Duday had the most badass play of the week. 
the the scorpion kick behind of Liam Henry. He was getting he was like engaged with Jai Amos, you know, not anything that was like a free kit, but you know, they were engaged with each other in the goal square and then Dude reach out and makes this insane scorpion kick that should be like on highlights around the world. It's not a conventional footy play, but it was so badass. It was my reaction in real time. Try to try to replicate it for you. Whoa! Which like you might get one of those from me every month. So to get that, you you've done something. I, I was audible upstairs because our parents were both awake. I I knew I was okay to be loud about it. I showed them. It was badass. Show this to people who don't watch footy and they'll be really impressed. Like, show this to people who don't watch any sport and they'll be impressed because that's just an incredible physical display. It, it was an insignificant play in the course of the game, all things considered, but but it was a cool play. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Inside 50 efficiency, by the way, it's kind of kept at that same clip that it was early on. Adelaide 56.9%, Frio 41.2, and you could kind of feel it. A team that normally swarms you defensively like Frio does should not be allowing that sort of efficiency. On the Frio side, Andrew Brayshaw, decent. 31 disposals, 7 tackles, 472 meters gained. I thought Caleb Sarong was probably their best player. A behind in 28 disposals. That would be the second week in a row where Sarong's their best, easily. And Luke Ryan with 22 disposals, 568 meters gained. I'm really glad I have him in fantasy. I'm glad I have Brayshaw in fantasy, and I'm also glad that I moved the captaincy off him this week. I initially had Tom Stewart as captain. I'm also glad I moved it off him. Would it have ended up mattering in the end? I I mean, actually, you know what? I would have won had I made Harry Sheasel captain, as I had almost thought of doing. That might be the move, like, every week. He's just so good at pretty much everything. I'll tell you who I ended up moving my captaincy to later. Because it, it plays a role in another contest. Richmond 12-12-84 defeated by Western Bulldogs 12-17-89. Ethan, what were you thinking when this game ended up getting close and having a somewhat compelling ending? I was sleeping, and then I woke up and said something incomprehensible about baseball and said about, like, why did they leave in a lefty reliever for the eighth inning? Yeah, so one interesting thing about Ethan is that the first... Five to ten minutes after he wakes up, he is completely incomprehensible. I mean, it depends. There are times when I, like, wake up with a start where it's just like, whoa, okay, fuck. Like, for example, if you oversleep, it's like, you know, you look up, see the clock, fuck, and you just go. That's why I had, like, a literal, like, a super loud last chance alarm. So that if I hear a certain thing, it's like, oh, shit, let's, but, but, goodbye, goodbye, bye. But I was just kind of coming to my senses gradually, and it was pretty funny. Um, I mean, it, it, you didn't even realize the dogs had won at first. Yeah, I I thought with the way the second quarter went, it was an eight-goal second quarter for Richmond. They outscored the dogs 51-14 in the second quarter to take a 67-53 halftime lead. I thought they were kind of going to run away with it, and I just thought, oh, look, Luke Beveridge got outcoached again and didn't adjust again. But that ended up being an aberration because the rest of the game... The dogs were dominant in clearance. It started with Tom Libertore in the first quarter, a mammoth first quarter for Libbuck. And overall, the Bulldogs controlled the ground and the ball when it mattered. As the Bulldogs worked their way out to a 23-point lead at quarter time, Libba accumulated nine disposals, six contested possessions, four clearances, three tackles, and two goals. 
outside of the first quarter, I still don't think they played that well. And I mean, the conditions did help to make this game kind of ugly because there were times when it just started dumping. Going out of halftime, it was a ridiculous downpour. And you could tell that it was waterlogged footy in a one goal third quarter. I didn't think anyone played a very good second half, like any individual player. I, I will say I thought Tim English had a really good game, but it was that was more predicated in the first half. I guess if I had to pick a guy who had an actual good second half, Ed Richards and Caleb Daniel were both pretty nice. And the Bulldogs, for their flaws, have a defense that can stand with the best of them. I mean, the Cats had approved last year. You can rest on a great back six. I want to point out somebody else who could play in the back, but ended up being kind of hanging off of the 450 a little bit a lot of the time. And that was Bailey Dale. I love that sort of right behind the main action role he plays. Ends up retaining the ball in the forward third a lot. Before you said retaining, I was going to say he's kind of like the retaining wall. And there you go. He was good. He was very active in this game. Do people remember that he was an All-Australian two years ago? I feel like that's forgotten because of who else in that midfield. But Tim English is not just a Ruckman. He is an elite all-around player who also happens to be good in Ruck contests and happens to be six foot nine. Nice. I did. If, if there was anyone else who could be played like Mark Blitzovs, just be put anywhere on the ground and succeed, I'd back in Tim English to be that guy. He doesn't have, like, the flair of, say, a Nick Natanui or Sam Draper in the actual contest off of a center bounce. But, man, he just affects the game at every level. And he's just clean when he does it, too. Like, I don't think he's one of the first guys that comes to mind when asked, like, who would you, you know, you're starting an expansion team, who would you build your team around? Which was a question asked on Twitter by Chaps. I think it was Chaps Chat Cats. It was one of the Geelong podcasts. I think it was Chaps. But if he could stay healthy, he'd probably be right up there with any of them. Him and Bottom Pelly, I'd say, would be the two. What would be the two? If you could pick a tandem, it's just like if you could pick two players, Bottom Pelly and English. Honestly, the difference is Bont's twenty-seven and English is only twenty-five. But I just think he's fucking awesome, and he was really really good in this game you know who wasn't unfortunately was um noah balta who just looks like he forgot how to play football um on a more positive side i noticed that rory lobb is starting to find himself i don't think he's all the way there but he's starting to find some level of comfort i thought noah cumberland was interesting because you know at first he was supposed to be just like the guy who fills in when dusty isn't there and now dusty's back and he was he ended up with a goal and two behinds on 21 disposals and 10 score involvements, but had a few really bad kicks that affected the game. And I think that was what defined this game to be for Richmond was some of the sloppiness we saw from them last year. Like, no, it wasn't having your heart ripped out at the last second, but it was pissing away a lot of opportunities that, that were there for the taking. Does this qualify as their first dick punch loss of the year? They let a three-quarter time. No, because it wasn't like you ever felt... I guess at halftime, I would have said, oh yeah, Richmond has this. But it wasn't like, you know, there was anything stupid in the final couple minutes. They trailed by two goals for pretty much the final 
10 plus minutes. They finally got a nice shade Bolton goal with 33 seconds left, but couldn't do anything after that. So I wouldn't characterize it as that, but the sloppiness did resemble how they lost games last year, which you can't just chalk that all up to the weather. It's, it's concerning. And what might be more concerning are the injuries. Now you've got Tom Lynch headed for foot surgery and Toby Van Curvis syndesmosis. Please, please just do it. Just bring Mate Colina straight in. Do it. I think it's going to be Ben Miller or Samson Ryan for a while. And I've liked Ryan's early work. And look, there are guys that can fill the void. Remember, we've talked about how we like these young Tigers, just like how the young Crows and young Saints had a really nice week. Maybe it could be the young Tigers, though I'm not, though I'm skeptical about it occurring against Sydney. Hugo Ralph Smith didn't have a great game, but he's so fast and he had a goal and he went nuts for it. I'm, I just like this guy. He's like, there's some grind to him in a very good way. Unique playing style. Kind of just, you know, you can pick him out from a mile away. His name is funny. Can you still pick out Brian super easily, even though he's cut his hair a bit? Yeah, I, th- I think so. Um, but yeah, there are some concerning trends for Richmond, who are now 2-1-1, one, and one, which I- I'd be very unsurprised if they lose to Sydney and fall to 2-2-1, two, two and one, which wouldn't be the end of the world. But you get the Ds after that of the Anzac Eve game. It's going to be, for the next couple weeks, not about whether they win or lose, but how they look as they do it. I want to see, over the next couple weeks, a team that doesn't beat themselves. If you get out-talented because you're missing some damn good players, so be it. But when you're getting these tailor-made chances, and then you have a shitty last kick into the forward 50 with just a bad turnover, that that's where I draw the line. And they've been doing a lot of that. I'm glad that you mentioned that Ed Richards and Caleb Daniel had strong games. They had their moments going forward, but also they did help lock things down in the fourth quarter when Richmond were pushing. And also, that was despite them being undermanned because they lost Alex Keith very early from a contest with Tom Lynch. And I didn't think that there would be any discipline from it, but Tom Lynch has been sent straight to the tribunal. Is it that, you know, didn't really put his hands up, didn't look like he was in a marking contest and more went for the contact. That's one where I'm still not sure, but it may not. A suspension may not matter at this point. Yeah, he's heading for surgery anyway, so it it, it doesn't really matter. In that case, that he should just take the three weeks. I mean, I still think you want to make a stand, like stand up for your guys and and fight it. Yeah, I I didn't think it was something that like when I watched it, I didn't see anything to it. What I thought was just, oh, that that looks bad. And they also lost Hayden Crozier in, in this one. And Crozier had had a nice game in the previous round. He was out after Josh Bruce slid into him and got him in the back. He was out from the late third quarter onward. But the defense managed to, managed to hold things. And they won the field position battle in the fourth quarter. Bulldogs only ended up using 63 of their 75 interchanges because they were basically playing with 21 from that fourth quarter. If you actually watch the game, it feels like a game the Bulldogs should have won by, like, I don't know, 15 to 17. I mean, I know the late goal kind of throws off the perception a bit, but if you could give out fewer than four points for this game, I would. Give the Bulldogs three. Yeah, 
three for the Bulldogs, none for the Tigers. That said, a few individuals really carried the dogs in this game, which has been their MO for a while. Not a lot of great depth contributions, but Bailey Dale, Benjamin was all over his performance. 30 disposals, 11 intercepts, 625 meters gained. The Bond, a behind 25 disposals, 12 tackles, 11 clearances, 9 score involvements. Tim English, a pair of goals, 23 hitouts, 20 disposals, 9 tackles. Tom Libratore, two goals, a behind, 23 disposals, an octopus, seven clearances. And Ed Richards, 19 disposals and eight marks. Again, Richards and Caleb Daniel, but especially Richards, just gives you that sense of calm in the back. Richards along with Liam Jones, I'd say. I think Liam Jones has been a really welcome return this year, but like, I think Jones has probably been been a good mentor back there for Richards because he had had to shoulder a lot of the most important assignments last year, especially when Keith wasn't as strong. But like Richards, Jacob Wiedering, Tom Stewart, you know, there's that select few guys where it's like, all right, they've got this. And he's in that category. Notable stat lines for Tigers, Daniel Rioli with 29 disposals, 11 intercepts and seven tackles. That kind of everywhere half back who can venture forward with these. Tim Taranto had a goal for 27 disposals and 10 score involvements. He and Liam Baker are both welcome to stay on my fantasy team probably for the whole year. Baker with 25 disposals and 10 intercepts. And there was a really misleading team stat from this one. Disposal efficiency inside 50. Richmond, 52.1%. Bulldogs, 42.2%. And yet the dogs ended up winning this one by five. Was that really some wastefulness in the third quarter when, when it got so wet? And the Bulldogs really couldn't move anything. They kicked one six from that quarter, so I think that would make sense. Some kicks definitely did weigh that down. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles. We win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Don't forget, you can find us on Twitter at Americans Footing. Individually, you can find me at Castle Media. That's Castle with a K. I am on Twitter at BenjaminHK01. Brian Harambe, the footy cat, is on Instagram, a cat named Brian. Don't forget, we're also on YouTube at Americans Footy, and I'll be posting some more shorts there. Posted one today. Couple of general news things and observations that I just hadn't really thought of a better time to include because they kind of tied into stuff earlier. First off, Carlton fans are acting more and more Maple Leafs ish every week, like overreacting to one good game. I can't wait until they have a bad game to overreact to. Also, it came out that Isaac Rankin was the recipient of some nasty comments from. Someone who just like made the anonymous Instagram account for the sole purpose of messaging him. And at this point, it makes me wonder if like condemning these things is more effective than just ignoring them. Because I think when someone does these things, a lot of times they're doing it to try to get noticed, to try to get a platform. So as good as it is to call it out, I, I wonder if it might be better to just not amplify it. You know, it's like, like, why the mute button on Twitter is so much more effective than the block button. 
the muting of terms is extremely useful as well. The amount of Warriors-related terms I have muted is off the charts. Also, anything Zodiac sign-related or K-pop-related or crypto-related. Let me... Let me go through my list of muted terms real quick to see if there's any other categories I really yeah, it, omitted here because it's, it's, it's a list. Hopefully you guys didn't actually think that we were into NFTs when we had our whole April Fool's thing. Hopefully you weren't one of the few we bamboozled. I got, I got four people. Four bamboozled. Let's see, muted words. A lot of Game of Thrones stuff too. Do you have Taylor Swift muted? No. Surprising. I know a lot of people do. All the different spellings of women that are active that are incorrect. Hmm. So, there were overlaps this round. Why the fuck were there overlaps this round? This is a five-day round. NRL did it right. Two Good Friday games in two different states. You could have an appeal for that other state in particular. Some royal hospital in Perth or in Adelaide. And it would be a great way to get that state behind that appeal is there like a requirement for anything on good friday to have to i i think having the appeal just was a really good pr move that made it more acceptable for the afl to have that game for north and look it would be just a great way for that cause to be spread and yet another state involved but because there was that overlap we had to split up for the late saturday slot and i got clearly the inferior of the two games I ended up getting the best performance of any of the four teams of that slot, but also the worst. St. Kilda 17-11-113, defeating the Gold Coast Suns 8-12-60. One of my biggest takeaways from this game is just that Ned Moyle is big. I want to go back and watch some of this game just to see how big he is. He's 6'9", 229. All right, what I'm going to do right now is put this game on, have it on mute, and just like watch, you're going to watch the first bounce probably because he was in there. Oh, no, the I'm, just gonna, I'm just going to have it on. We might be talking about some other game at some point. I'll just hopefully just go. Whoa. Okay. Looking at the opening bounce. Well, they have to, there was a bad bounce. So they got to redo it. He doesn't look that huge in this. He's just going to go. Okay. When he jumps, kind of see it, but it's not like once you get, once he gets out of the center square, I think it's more visible. Kind of like like Levi Casbolt, where it's just like, whoa. Yeah, exactly. But Moyle was in making I see David Roden. Yes, I got David Roden again. I've had a knack for doing for having David Roden's games for overlaps. A lot of Sundays like that. But Moyle was in because Jared Witz was a late out. And so that meant there were two debutants for the Suns, along with Bailey Humphrey. Also, Mac Andrew played in this game, which I just want to know because... I don't know if he played great. I'd love to get your analysis on his performance. I, ju- I do know that he had a couple of Golden Fist-worthy plays. Bang. Um, yeah, he did, because we text each other when there are Golden Fist moments with, like, the elongated last syllables, like, back and bang. And then I think shortly after that, I might have tweeted, might have texted, Mac Andrew bang. I haven't watched this week's bounce yet. I'm... Probably gonna do that when we wrap up recording if I'm still like awake. But yeah, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna keep this game on in the background and just randomly interject something every now and then. That's gonna be the theme for the rest of this show. Oh, have fun. But honestly, okay, I'll tell you about Mac Andrew then. He was put up against Jack Higgins for some reason, 
And that matchup did not work out. Hagen's ended up succeeding against both Mac Andrew and Will Powell, despite the clear size difference there between a- Andrew and Hagen's. Just Hagen's has been really on to start this season. Was he popping a collar this time, though? Unfortunately, no, because he had no collar to pop. I mean, like popping an invisible collar would have been funny. I, I would have totally done that if I was in his spot. You know that apparently th- that there was um, a photo of him sh- as like a little kid eating a chocolate bar while at a game that popped up on Twitter and the Saints confirmed, yep, that's Higgins at a Saints game when he was a kid. But he had another excellent game. He kicked 5-1 from 22 disposals and was another tone setter for them, along with Mason Wood, of course, Caleb Wilkie being that stable presence in the back, and also... Jackson Clear has been playing further and further downfield, being more active in the middle, and has been just a good link-up guy there between, really, all three-thirds of the ground when needed. How the fuck did we lose to the Suns? Self-inflicted. I'm very disappointed in them, and like I'm glad they're playing Frio this coming week in the... Gather around. Because whoever loses will be a very disappointing one in four. Are you Screwdometer will be out in full force. We haven't brought that out yet this year. I mean, like, your season's not over if you're one in four, but it, it's between two teams that I think it's a proper matchup because neither of them have really played the way we've wanted them to look. It was a pretty even first quarter, and then the Saints scored five goals to one in the second. That was when the midfield really showed up just outside the immediate stoppages and clearances because those stats were pretty even throughout the contest. But it was off of that action where guys like Higgins, Brad Hill, Naziah Wagonine Miller got involved. He's another really fun one. But if there's one Saint to be excited about for this game, one player in general to be excited about for this game, it's the guy that I think just kicked a goal. Or no, he just missed, but he ended up kicking a couple, just kind of looking over at Ethan's screen as he's having this one on in the background. It's Michito Pepper Owens, who ought to be getting the three votes from this game. 2-2 from 27 disposals, super involved. He continues to play taller than 191 centimeters or 6-3 because he is playing that key forward role. He is willing to take on bigger targets in marking contests, and a lot of the time he's winning those, and he's just another good-for-footy young player who has to be the rising star nominee for this round, right? He hasn't been yet, has he? No, but he's eligible. Yeah, then it should be him. Saints continued to stretch their margin in the third with another five-goal to one quarter. They had 13 marks inside 50 to one for the Suns in the third, and Gold Coast dropped a few, but their defense is thin, and their midfielders are dropping back and supporting, because that's just not quite their style. I liked the games out of Noah Anderson for the middle and further forward, Mal Roses and Nick Holman for the Suns, but it wasn't enough of a team performance overall. And they could really use Caleb Graham in the back as that sort of anchor, that guy to be able to help define everybody else's role. We have yet to see Caleb Graham. I don't know if he puts the clamps on Higgins necessarily, but I think he provides some stability so that Higgins doesn't go 5-1. That, and I think that would it would allow Charlie Ballard and Sam Collins to have clearer one-on-ones. Will Powell as well. Powell also, yeah. It's it's funny when, and I mentioned this like during the Adelaide Frio game, when like two people who knew 
nothing about this sport four years ago are stating the obvious that entire coaching staffs and front offices are somehow missing. Like a lot of times the organization knows what they're doing and they're seeing things that we don't get to see. I think she says, you know, they have access to practices and exact sorts of analytics and everything. But like the, the inside versus outside perspective is where it gets interesting. And from our outsider perspective, this is what we're seeing. And it looks glaringly obvious from the 80 minutes on the oval. I got this quote actually from a high school coach a couple weeks ago. High school basketball coach? Yeah, about how like a player was under recruiting coming out of high school kid who ended up on the national runner up at San Diego State. And, you know, the quote was like, sometimes the obvious isn't obvious to us. This is one of those cases. Brad Crouch was a leading disposal getter for the Saints with 34 and eight tackles. Jack Sinclair had a goal from 31 and 659 meters gained. I'm liking that linking role he plays. It seems really natural to have him doing that on the inside and Wankanee Miller more on the outside. Wankanee Miller gained 538 meters, by the way, from... 24 disposals at 8 marks. Hunter Clark had 27 touches. Cal Wilkie and Mason Wood with 24. Wilkie with 12 intercepts at 11 marks. Wood with 9 marks. First game where he didn't get a goal, but he kept his 20 disposal streak up. Rowan Marshall was my captain. I moved the captaincy onto him when I found out that Jared Witz was a late out. And, and it worked better than my other two options that I'd considered during the week. He had 21 disposals and 7 clearances had that impact off the contest that Moyle just didn't. And Dougal Howard did nice things for the back. 18 disposals, 10 intercepts, 9 marks. He and Wilkie have been working well together on those back lines. You can't have that one guy who's the All-Australian defender do everything on, on his own in the very back. So Howard's been that good second piece. Saints committed 81 turnovers. Suns committed 96. That's, that's a lot. Noah Anderson had a really nice game, but this was one of those things like a lot of times when it goes bad for the Suns, it's similar to the Bulldogs where it's like the few best players do everything they can, but the rest of the team just doesn't have it. And that's why I mentioned Anderson along with Roses and Holman. Anderson, a goal and a behind, 38 disposals, an octopus, seven clearances, 687 meters gained. An octopus, by the way, because he had 10 tackles. Took Miller, 32 disposals, 10 clearances, 8 tackles, 501 meters. Lockie Weller, 30 disposals, 838 meters. I forgot how much ground he gained. Darcy McPherson makes at least 1-2 to two plays a week, where you can tell he has an awareness rating of 0, but he did have 25 disposals and 10 intercepts. Will Powell, a behind, 19 disposals, 516 meters gained. And Sam Collins, 17 disposals, 13 intercepts, and 11 marks. Big defensive stats because they were challenged often. Just disappointing game from a team that's even in their one win. And this is another parallel with Frio. Why I'm so excited for this game next week. It's like they've been so disappointing. Even in their win, they haven't played well. Are you going to say somebody's got to win? <laughs> I don't smell a draw in this game. There are some games where you can smell it. This game doesn't smell like it. It just smells like one team's going to be decent and the other's just going to suck shit. Did you smell that Sydney versus Port was when your prediction was going to come true? No. I I did have this sense for a while. It felt like Port were going to win this game. You know, the, you know, both McCartans getting injured was a big part of that, but both of them getting concussed, it appears. We know Tom was. 
we think Patty was, wasn't, not sure if it was ever confirmed, but they took him out after just this seemingly innocuous head contact with the ground. Yeah, he's, it Com- like completely phased him. It's like, I'm, I don't lie down on my pillow that much softer than his head hit the ground. And it's just really unfortunate. It, it makes you wonder, like, is this a guy who should be playing any sort of contact sport at all if this sort of very light touch is causing this? I, I think at the very least, he's got to try wearing, like, the Caleb Daniel Arangus Brayshaw helmet moving forward. The the Peter Check helmet. It's It just sucks. So, before we go further with this game, I'm going to play the audio from 1 hour, 18 minutes, 48 seconds of last episode. Just to... Just to give you the context of what Ethan said, we were talking about how we hadn't seen after the siren drama yet this season, wondering, you know, we've seen so much of it these past few years. Are we due for any this time? And then Ethan said this. I think, you know what we're due for? Is someone missing a potential game-winning kick after the siren. Like, not just, you know, got a bombing from 60, but like an actual reasonable set shot. Well, sir, between the wind and a well-timed punch from Alir Alir, we got it. Sydney 9-10-64 defeated by Port Adelaide 9-12-66 in absolutely amazing fashion. This was, this is such a hard game to describe. I didn't think either team played particularly well. No, but I think the circumstances that caused Sydney to play less well you can give them a bit more of a pass. Like, I look at this game, I thought Sydney were the better team because of the circumstances. I also felt for a while, it just felt like a game Port were going to win, that they were just going to get the offensive mismatches that they needed, that maybe like some of the, the guys that don't immediately jump off the board for them would have more of an impact. I didn't, I didn't think, you know, that Jeremy Finlayson would end up being the crucial offensive piece for them in this one. Awesome that he was, especially back in Sydney. I, I bet just from his time with the Giants, he loves having performances against the Swans like this. When he was interviewed after a game, he was asked about his family, which I that hadn't even crossed my mind during the game. I was just thinking, oh yeah, he used to play in Sydney. And I, I mean, his, his wife is pretty far into a cancer battle. Yeah. But like that hadn't even crossed my mind. And I hope like during a game... You know, it gives him a little bit of time to kind of like step back from that and focus uh, and just play football. And after the game, I'm sure it hits you like a ton of bricks. I'm I'm not sure about what to think about whether that was the right call for them for them to kind of bring that up in that moment. The public seems divided. It's it's tough because like you want to tell his story and it's a necessary part of it, but I don't know if you have to bring it up when directly talking with him. But um. Sydney led 20 to 3 after a quarter. Seemed like a game they were going to run away with. It was 29 to 4 in the second. And then Port finished the second quarter on the 26 1 run to tie it. They actually scored 26 straight. And then Luke Parker missed just before the siren. That set it to half tie to 30. It was a really bad call that gave him that kick. So, uh, Baldo lie. Bad umpiring of this one in general. Stuff that favored Sydney more, the, more often than not. Sydney led by 20 with 13-10 left in the game. It was 52-38 after three, and then Isaac Heaney made a great read on a Luke Parker kick. Which is like, I'm going to see this guy playing center field. I don't care if he's never played baseball in his life. He had, 
he reads kicks about as well as anyone. You see him taking so many marks airborne because he knows how to judge, you know, this is from where I have to take off. This is how far I need to go vertically, horizontally. He just has that spatial awareness that makes it so much easier for him to maximize his talents. It's 58-38, and you think, all right, this is done. Port, other than the second quarter, we're not able to exploit the absence of the McCartans. I, I'm, and I'm just still thinking in this moment about the umpiring that went against them at a couple points. So there was early on, Sydney's second goal came from a deliberate rush behind call against Dan Houston. Now, I'd, I think you're more okay with it, but I think the big ruling is that, you know, a player within one meter, which Logan McDonald was, counts as immediate pressure. And so that's where things get a little fuzzy. But I don't. But what we can't debate, though, is the missed review. This was when Jackson Mead thought he had Port's first goal, but the on-field call was behind. There was no deviation, but I guess it wasn't clear enough. It, it, it frustrated me that there were a couple umpires call reviews this round that seemed to be incorrect. On that Houston one, I thought if he had made one more effort to get away from McDonald to kind of show that he was being pressured, it would have been fine. I understand that. It In real time, I thought it was a fine call. When you slow it down, it's tough. <laughs> and you gotta consider that the umpires are making this decision in real time. But yeah, 58 to 38. Oh, by the way, Jason Derulo was at this game and he got to see a great one, unlike Sidney Sweeney. The, the Swans definitely win on getting to have like the coolest celebrities at their games on a regular basis because because not just they're in Sydney, they're the main attraction in Sydney. The, the main attraction in the most populous and main attraction city of Australia. Port finally came swinging back. Dean Ramphy gets called for a questionable push on Tom Marshall. That cuts it to 10. Then a couple of bad calls that evened out. Justin McInerney got away with holding the ball, but Connor Rosie got a free because Luke Parker, he and Parker were kind of holding each other, but Parker pinned his arm down. Then Darcy Byrne-Jones, who played great in the sub role, replacing Junior Rioli, sets up Jed McEntee, a really smart sub. He already had the defensive structure, and obviously he was able to supplement that at times, but had important forward stints as well as an assist guy a couple times. And then from there, it was, you know, Everyone but rushed the ball no matter where it is on the ground. Charlie Dixon all of a sudden in the defensive 50. Charlie Dixon all of a sudden giving up a 50. Yeah, um, and it was one that you had to call. He, The Swans have been given back-to-back -back free kicks, and then instead of giving the ball back to Nick Blakey, he kind of just needed it. He just overcooked the kick over, right over his head, and you can't say that this was just a bad kick. It was, even if you're a Port fan... Like, your reaction to that call would be more Charlie what-the-fuck instead of just entire what-the-fuck. And what Jeremy Finlayson was told, he didn't argue. He was just exasperated. That set up Nick Blakey to give the Swans the lead with 2.29 left. Thankfully, it was still, you know, a somewhat challenging kick. It wasn't, you know, a goal-square penalty, and there wasn't any dissent that came after. But Dixon rebounded right after he made a great play to get clearance. Jason Horn Francis sent it into the forward 50, and Finlayson ends up kicking the go-ahead goal he, after 
taken a mark, kind of like Jack Henry's mark against Richmond last year. I, I went falling and bobbling and juggling. It was cool. I'm, I'm not going to compare those two that easily. Finlayson was already on the ground when he corralled in that second effort. He didn't go up nearly as high. He just happened to be tangled with, with the guy and, you know, wasn't that long a kick from Xavier Dersma. But still, like, the slow-mo nature of it and... You know, that it was happening while falling in the final minutes of a back-and-forth game. I I think it's a, it's fair to at least be reminded of it. Okay, but I'd rather I'm the Geelong fan, so, like, I should be the one who gets bothered if people compare something. Yeah, I don't have any... Actually, when I think of crazy Eagles finishes that were positive, I think of the one where, where Liam Ryan certainly didn't kick 15 meters, but Josh Kennedy got the call. Against Richmond? Yes, against Richmond. Because Richmond and Dick punch losses go together like Richmond and Dick punch losses. So Finlayson gives him back the lead with 136 left. Hort, at this point, are kind of playing like empty net hockey defense where it's just like clear it at all costs. And it looked like it was going to kill him because that let Sydney recharge and make one last push. Rampy to Heaney to Florin. Florin didn't have the kick from about 48 Kicks as the siren sounds, pretty much siren sounding and kick and the ball coming off his booter at the same time. Kind of like the timing of Jamie Elliott's kick last year, and it looks like it's there. It's and then because this is the SCG, you have someone blocking the camera, which just seems to be like an SCG thing. It looked to be there. It was online. The wind was really difficult going toward that end of the ground anyway, which the commentators did not mention throughout the game, which they probably should have mentioned were the commentators in melbourne i don't know but the wind was clearly a factor asking i have to think that they were in sydney because seven usually sends their crews but wind knocked it down and then alir punched it out and also if it had gone through buddy pretty clearly pushed well more full-on tackled miles bergman miles not to be confused with jason horn francis or his brother miller bergman and yeah, had it gone through, I mean, he, it was bad. And I, there's no way it would have been called in that spot, but this was, bl- especially against him. But also, I mean, I find it satisfying that Port won because they had a lot of calls go against them. Also, because Pete Laddams is a punk ass bitch and his former side beat him. And also, Alir Alir is awesome. And for him to get over Sydney in doing that was really rewarding. And he was already, I think, the best player on the ground. Before that, you know, you don't. I was telling Ethan when I was doing my rewatch of this game earlier tonight before the Easter Monday clash between Geelong and Hawthorne. Geelong won, by the way. More on that later. But I was telling Ethan, you know, when I think of individual performances in a game, I don't usually think of a defender first. But in terms of like full body of work from Sydney versus Port, Alir's the first guy on my mind. We had 97 of the 130 points were scored on the Randwick end, which is the right side of the screen, which tells you how much of a factor the wind was. It was consistently around like 15, 16 miles an hour, a little over 25 kilometers an hour if you're using communist measurements. And yeah, it was definitely a factor on that final kick. I also think it was super poetic for Port to win in this fashion because it looked like it was there. Florin was like celebrating his teammates were tackling him, celebrating. Dylan Stevens was tackling him. Callum Mills vacated the line. 
because he was celebrating Alir ended up being right there in that spot. But you're not telling me Mills was going to be able to box out Alir. It's just physically that's that's not going to happen as good as Callum Mills is. But it's so funny because you look at the Dawson kick from last year, which I know Port fans don't need any reminder of. And I'm sure if you asked any Port fan, like, you could trade Dawson's kick missing for Florence kick going through. They'd all take that because it's in a showdown versus a game against just another team. But remember, Dawson's kick looked like it was going to miss and then it came back. Whereas this looks like it's there the whole way and the wind knocks it down. Like that's best justice. That's that's pretty cool for them. These were the Swans' first back-to-back losses since rounds seven and eight last year, which were both at home against the Queensland teams. I'm not going to hit the panic button on the Swans at all. I mean, they're two and two. They've lost back-to-back games to good teams. And again, they lose two of their most important defenders in the middle of this game. I just, Port didn't take advantage of it enough. And that's why, I mean, it looked like Hinkley coached a good second quarter. But other than that, I'm still so unimpressed with him. And I love that, like, the reaction from Crows fans when... That kick came short was like, ah, you're stuck with Hinkley instead of, oh, wow, they actually won. Damn. Which I think is is telling. I love this rivalry because of stuff like that. It's the most fun non-Victorian rivalry. It might even it might even be more fun off the Oval than Carlton and Collingwood. I think maybe something about people from Adelaide that are just, I don't know what it is, but between like the marmalade guys and... This city just seems to have, like, a funny subculture to it that, like, that we have, I don't know what to compare it to. It's not quite, like, a Philadelphia thing. It's just something that we'll have to explore when we make our footy piece. It's just, like, I feel like they're more Australian than the rest of Australia, if that makes sense. All right, port stats. Uh, Zach Butters, a goal in 27 disposals. Xavier Dursma, 22 disposals. Connor Rosie didn't have a huge night stat-wise, but I liked how he played a goal in 20 disposals. He and Butters still do a lot of that running together, and they both kind of take the heat off of each other and make one-on-one matchups more difficult. Jeremy Finlayson kicked 3-1 on 18 disposals. Jason Horn-Francis, one goal, one behind, 18 disposals. Eight score involvements, zero ice baths. Alir Alir, 16 disposals, 12 intercepts, and... I haven't watched this week's bounce yet, but, like, he's got to get three Golden Fist votes for that one play. Fuck it, give him all six votes. He was awesome. Also, to give you an indication of how much this game, you know, possession swung in Sydney's favor, Port made 24 inside 50 tackles to Sydney's seven, and Sydney were at just 40.3% efficiency inside 50, which seems... Really, really strange. You know, you think of them as a team that's so methodical and so effective, and it's amazing that you can look at this game and think, okay, they lost two of their most essential defenders, and yet you can still say they pissed this game away. Also, Buddy Franklin kicked one behind on eight disposals, racked up a whopping 14 fantasy points, and... Considering what he is as a cultural icon, it would be nice for him to have, like, a good ride-off into the sunset, but he's he's playing about as well as Derek Jeter did on his retirement tour. The 2014 Yankees make the playoffs if they aren't batting Jeter second all year. Despite how the game ended, Ollie Florent had a a good game overall, and it's definitely in the running for some Brownlow votes. 
a goal from 33 disposals, 9 intercepts, and gained 890 meters. I guess that includes that last kick. Chad Warner kicked 2-1 from 30, 9 clearances at 543 meters, and he can kick from pretty much anywhere on ground, and you can be, can be confident that it's going to get to the target. Jake Lloyd had 24 disposals, 8 intercepts, and 507 meters gained. He was asked to do a lot once the McCartans went out and did an alright job. Luke Parker behind for 22 disposals, Errol Golden with 20 and 7 tackles, James Robottom, 13 tackles, it's just how he plays, and he was tagging Connor Rosie, which definitely limited his impact, and so that's why you had to see Rosie and Butters doing some of that running together as well. I feel like everyone needs a James Robottom on their team, the gritty tackler, just, he makes winning plays, and... Part of the reason it's surprising the Swans lost this game. Again, though, for some reason, I just it just felt like a game Port was going to win. And I had no scientific reasoning to it. And then they they did it. It's the first, like, after the siren kick from a reasonable distance in our time watching that didn't go. Yeah, the last one before that would be, I guess... At least 2019, if not earlier than that, because the ones listed here over the last couple of years were like, you know, 60, 70 meters. And then the other one I'm thinking of is the one that Jacob Townsend had for Essendon, but that was a few seconds before the siren went. I believe the behind signal was even with three seconds left back in round four of 2020. Yeah, so it's it's hard to count that one. We also don't remember it. I'll try to make more insanely specific predictions moving forward. On to Sunday, Essendon 11-22-88, defeating GWS 11-9-75. How difficult was this to watch live? So, I go on Twitter, we had our Seder, I know it's you know it was technically the, the fourth night of Passover, but it was the most logical night to get everybody together. Yeah, we, we take the Seder, across the Golden Gate Bridge, up to our grandmother. Her friend was there as well. And it was, look, it was an it was an awesome time. Her caregivers are really fun. Yes. Anyway, I tweet at like, I don't know, about a little under an hour and a half after this game started. Like, I'm going to watch this game from the start now. Been out doing Passover stuff. And the responses were like, basically just the first half sucked. And like, the first six minutes were fun, and honestly, my perception of the game wasn't like, this sucked. It was like a compelling bad watch. You know, some bad movies are fun, like bad sci-fi movies. This was kind of like that. Was it a good bad because it stayed close? No, it was just like, holy fuck, how do Essendon keep missing all of these, and will they actually end up losing this game? No, I I had wished they drawing the game like they did the 1948 Grand Final when, as a reminder, they kicked 7-27-69. Nice. Melbourne kicks 10-9-69. Nice. And then won the replay with ease. But yeah, like you said, 11-22. It's funny because I was just looking when we were discussing that Townsend kick. I had seen that in a game in 2020, Brisbane kicked 10-23, and I was thinking, like, man, how is that even possible? And then they 
go and kick 11-22, but I mean, we, we saw the Bulldogs kick 7-19 and 9-17 last year. I feel like when it gets into the 20s, though, that's when it really hits you. But for the most part, Essendon, they picked a good day to have a bad game. The first few minutes, like the first six, seven minutes of this game were actually really fun and compelling, and then the misses just started pouring on, and other than for a couple of very brief spurts, Essendon were clearly the better team and just couldn't put away those chances. GWS just, they're limited with talent. They should be playing Aaron Cadman. I want them to play Jason Gilby because Milk. They should be playing Cadman over Riccardi. Riccardi's had trouble marking and getting involved all year. He actually had a couple of decent plays in the second half, but he's probably one of the weaker links. And it, it just seems like such an obvious like-for-like like move. And I don't know, are they waiting to debut Cadman at home to see if they could actually fucking get a crowd? Like, what's the motive here? Yeah, looking at their lineup, I mean, I guess you could put them in over, like, Brent Daniels or... Daniel Lloyd as well. Nah, I I think Daniels has had, I think Daniels has been all right enough, and he's allowed and he's allowed a commentator to make a stormy reference this year. Essendon, if we're going off of AFLX score, which is a great Twitter page, they scored eighty six from an expected one sixteen point nine. The kicks they missed were like a very even distribution of kicks they should handle and difficult ones. GWS kicked 75 from an expected 86.9. It was funny because they were actually pretty efficient early, and then they kicked 2-5 in the second quarter. They still went into half up 10 because, like I said, Essendon kicked 3-13 in the first half, but Bombers ended up taking a lead by the end of the third. There was a good little back-and-forth sequence at one point where he had, like, five lead changes in the latter half of the third quarter, and then starting the fourth, Archie Perkins goal, Jake Stringer goal, and then Jake Stringer with a barrel from 60 out of nowhere for his fourth. So an offensive highlight in the game with not that many of them. I mean, Stringer ends up kicking four, six on the day, but that play was pretty cool. I think the smartest thing that Brad Scott did was moving Dyson Heppel to the sub role. He was awesome in that spot. Well, he hasn't been able to put full games together. Why is he in the 22? Now that he's not, he's able to kind of have a more concentrated output, and it worked. 19 disposals at 100%. It's funny how the sub role can be used one of two ways. It can, you can either give it to a young guy as a spark plug or to an old guy that just doesn't have the ability to give a full game's worth of energy. Like, think about Zach Tui as a potential sub for the future. Not a bad idea. If he wasn't the captain, I'd think of Dangerfield for that, because when he gives those quick spurts, it's like, whoa. But yeah, Essendon pulled away from there. They got up by about 25, and then GWS got a couple of goals. They cut it to 13 with 3.53 left and put on enough late pressure that things could have been interesting, but they couldn't get that next goal, and Essendon came away with the win. Again, they picked a good day to play poorly. I don't have a ton of takeaways or revelations about them. Just Mason Redman is the definition of an offensive defenseman. You know, he's great at moving the ball, not great in one-on-one -on -one contests in his own 50. Uh, on the GWS side, I did notice they were really quick to utilize Harry Himmelberg in a bunch of different spots. He took a nice mark in the goal square late and also made himself useful defensively, which, like, it's just good to see that they're 
getting the most out of his skill set. And I think they're also going to be using him more defensively once Cadman comes in. I think that just makes sense to allow Cadman more space to operate. That's why I was calling for him to have more time in the back from the beginning. But will they need him in the back once Jason Gilby and all his milk comes in? Really? That's, that's the real question here. I thought Jack Buckley didn't play a very good game. That's really the extent of my takeaways from this. It's just it, a hard watch. Well, I've seen a hard, a hard, hard game to get a lot out of because we're preoccupied with, with the kit, with the poor kicking for goal. I mean, looking at a couple of the games in past rounds, like I thought this was a more fun watch than GWS Carlton last week. By the way, the last two opponents for GWS have combined to kick 20-42. That's um, 62 scoring shots in two weeks, which is bad. And then you throw in like all those easy crows misses in round one. They ended up kicking 12-18. So hang on. Gonna do some quick math. Two plus two is four. Minus one, that's three quick maths. Uh, all right. So opponents this year against GWS have kicked 46-76. The best of those was West Coast 14-16 in round two. Dear God. I'm I'm tweeting this right now. So if you if you want to source this to like when we recorded this. Yeah, we do this at pretty ridiculous hours. This is how dedicated we are. Because just like you, we care. Thanks, Basil. I want to know, like, what's the record for behinds to goals ratio for a team? Uh, for Like, against a team. That would be a fun one for Swamp to look up. Some s and statistics for this one. Darcy Parrish, who had a really good Q&A with Callum Toomey heading into this round. 30 disposals, 7 clearances, 561 meters gained. I agree with what he said. We're looking at his game more positively because... Essendon are performing better. Also, he's a future cap. Zach Merritt, 1-1 one, one for 28 and 629 meters. Dylan Shield, 28, 616 meters. Mason Redmond, here he is. A goal, devil horns. 27 disposals and 494 meters gained. And Nick Martin kicked 2-1 for 24. He doesn't just score goals in junk time, you know. Efficiency inside 50. Essendon at 59%. GWS, 50%. I mean... Good overall, the kicks were getting there. They just weren't making enough of those last ones. Again, the expected score could have been like 117 to 87. Um, GWS had early on, you know, they didn't get many chances inside 50, but they were smooth when they got them, and then they stopped being smooth. But Essendon gave up a lot of high-quality chances. Stats for the Giants who have given up 122 scoring shots through four rounds. Tom Green, 34 disposals, 462 meters gained, and a fan club. Even outside of Canberra, there was a Tom Green fan club sign. Please, please have a Tom Green fan club travel for the gather round. And then go back to Canberra for Anzac round. Josh Not Jake Kelly, two goals behind, 28 disposals, 503 meters gained. Lockie Ash, 26 disposals and eight marks, but that was more of you know, it was, it was the volume that got him those numbers. I didn't think any of the GWS defenders played all that well. Not even Sam Taylor? No, he had 15 disposals on nine intercepts, seven marks. It was just like, he was there. He's a solid intercept defender, even on a bad day. But it, it wasn't his best performance. The The way I see it, like, well, I think this probably would have applied more, like, discussing Allier, or like, Alir can take anyone in his own 50, but in terms of, like, moving the ball, 
you'd obviously rather have like, say, Tom Stewart. Taylor, I think, is a little bit more like a lesser Stewart in terms of skill set, whereas Lear is like, you know, elite interceptor, not not a particularly good ball mover. Nick Haynes, a volume game. Great if you have him in fantasy, but not a super special performance. 26 disposals, 17 marks, 10 intercepts. Steven Cadelio, a goal, 25 disposals, 7 clearances, 1 sentient eyebrow. Lockie Whitfield, I, I noticed him a decent amount. 24 disposals, 519 meters. Giants play Hawthorne out at Norwood next week in the... Gather round. And Essendon take on Melbourne, I think. Most of us are expecting Essendon to kind of get whacked, but I think they'll play a little better than they have the last couple weeks. If they keep that game interesting, then you start to take them much more seriously. GWS's banner for this game should have been just like, you were the best team we beat last year. You know, that, that Crows win looks better, but like I said, my, my goal for GWS was beat a team that makes finals this year, not Geelong. I mean, now we wonder about Cats making finals. I'm a little bit less pessimistic about that now. Uh, you know who's not making finals are the Eagles. And I say this even though I know the Cats can totally lose to them last next week, although uh, a healthier Eagle squad would be much scarier. Yeah, um, jeez, how many changes here? Uh, seven counter the sub. And that's, remember, no COVID to do with this, just carnage. A lot of guys got hurt. Carnage from the Western Derby. I mean, I, I'm very happy to see the guys that got in get in, particularly Greg Clark, Jai Cully, and Brady Hoff. Clark and Cully, along with Ruben Jinby, really took took on in the middle, were active tacklers. I mean, you'd expect it from Jinby, but good to see those other two do it as well, and really forced Melbourne into some uncomfortable spots in the second in the first half. I still or, think it should be should be Ginby, not Jinby. Uh, Whatever it's, I guess it, it's what it's gin and tonic, and that doesn't make sense. Regardless, I like Wire. I like all three of those guys, and I mean they did force Melbourne into some less comfortable spots in the first half. It was only a four-goal game at halftime, and then Melbourne kicked nine goals to two in the third. Yeah, I you you wasn't you knew what was going to happen. I wasn't super tired late in the third quarter. It wasn't like, all right, I need to sleep, but it's just, I just made the conscious decision. Putting the laptop away, calling it a night. I'll watch Bounce later. I've had enough. You made the right call. I'm surprised, considering that most of the Eagles' bigger outs were on the offensive end, that they ended up giving up 126. Final score, they got exactly doubled up. West Coast, 9-9-63, defeated by Melbourne, 19-12-126. Honestly, what did exact doubling up mean? Like, exact double the goals and behinds as well. So, if it were 18-18, it would have been that. Just surprised how it manifested itself. There were a couple moments early at different times in the first half where it was like, okay, and the Eagles are kind of scrapping, hanging around. You know, they they only trailed 19-13 to and then... Gave up the last couple of the first quarter, trailed 31-14. Point is, you know, they were getting in their own way. They were struggling to take the ball out of the defensive half. And then it made sense that Melbourne would do so well at stoppage, considering you had Brody Grundy going up against Bailey J. Williams. It, I guess, the, the lack of familiarity 
with all the changes could have contributed to getting it out of their own 50. But again, the struggles came out in ways you wouldn't have anticipated, at least from my outsider perspective, whereas you're getting things, you know, you're looking at things much more closely. So that's yeah. I mean, that's why I defer to you on this. Well, when they actually got chances, when they were actually able to get through the middle, and Tim Kelly was super involved, Kelly with 36 disposals and 703 meters gained, he did kick two goals as well. But most of the time, when the Eagles got past the center of the ground, they lacked real forward half structure. Maybe it was because they were so often going back to assist defensively, and that didn't really end up working that much either, considering, again... 19 goals, 19-12, but uh, the experience gap was really visible in this one, and Melbourne had chances to open up the game further in the first half, but they got the percent boost they needed in the end. There, I, I wish there were more to say about this. I will say, actually, cool that the players from Western Australia on Melbourne's list, you know, did good things, had their family there. Judd McVie... Kasi Pickett as well, who returned from suspension and kicked two goals, ended up kicking two five. But let's ignore the five there and say that the 30 tickets he was able to get for the Carpenteri and Pickett families was awesome. Mackie Andrew Rudd. Oh, yeah, you you still got that Suns game all in the background. Yeah, next to Marshall, Moyle doesn't look that big. Whereas when you see him running in the middle of the field, it's, oh yeah, it's definitely more apparent. Whereas like, Casbolt, you put him against even like Callum Wilkie, and it's just, whoa, he's big. Ben King as well. Like, the Suns could really overwhelm with their size. The thing is, again, sending all your talls forward isn't always the solution, Luke Beveridge. I don't think this should be a new thing where we're like reacting to an unrelated game in real time, like one that we didn't really watch because of an overlap. I think that should be a thing. I'm, I'm behind the journey. I don't know. I, I might need to do this now as well. I got to think about it for, for uh, next week where we have that little overlap. I, I like the random interjections. I think we need to do more of this, but let's sit Claire doing a kick out. Yeah. He went all over, but McVie, Pickett, Jacob Van Royen's second game was back home and he kicked a couple goals. Just overall good stuff for Melbourne. How about you give the stats, Ethan? I like watching Jacob Van Royen. Clayton Oliver, maybe I should have taken him instead of Rory Laird with that number one overall pick. Not that Laird's been bad, but Oliver just like guaranteed to put up a line like this every week. 34 disposals, 10 clearances, 10 score involvements in an octopus. He has created so many scores from turnovers this year. Like as much as Morris Rioli forced them late last year, Oliver's done to start this season, it seems. When I write down stats, I don't, you know, I try to note a guy with, like, double-digit score involvements or at least, like, eight or nine if they didn't kick any themselves. Like, if you kick five goals, 12 score involvements isn't crazy, but when you didn't have a single scoring shot and you have 10, that's impressive. That's a lot. Christian Petraka, three goals. Usually seems to be only good for one or two, so step up in that department to go with his 29 disposals and eight marks. Lockie Hunter, who's been great with Melbourne, 27 disposals. I, look, if the D's win the flag this year, Hunter could be like this year's Tyson Stengel, where it's like off-field issues plus change of scenery equals success. And I, and I saw a great piece this week about how 
Hunter and Ed Lighton have really stayed on their own sides of the ground and it's really worked for them this year. It was, who was that piece from? I forget, but it was a really good piece of analysis. I'm sorry, I can't credit you on the spot here. No, no, wait. Uh, it was a, it was an ABC article from Cody Atkinson and Sean Lawson. It was such a cool piece. They really, yeah, they like incorporated heat maps really well and the use of graphics was really smart. This is Good journalism. Tread Rivers matched Hunter with 27 disposals. Brody Grundy with, surprise it was only 33 hitouts, but also 22 disposals and 7 clearances. Ed Langdon, a behind in 22 disposals. Jack Viney, a goal, 22 disposals and 7 clearances. Tom McDonald's he a West guy, or am I thinking of Logan McDonald? You're thinking of Logan. Yeah, Tom McDonald kicked 4-1 on 16 disposals. McDonald was dropped last week. And, I mean, good on him to get back into form so quickly. Maybe he just likes kicking in Perth. But he's really making his case to still be able to stick around as that swing man. And then, no, they're congratulating Mac on something here. Oh, this thing was just, oh, that's a great pod. Bang, it was one of the ones that I texted you about. Yeah, Alex Neal Bolin, really interesting line. 11 tackles as a forward to go with his goal and 15 to vote. Yeah, don't usually see him as that sort of tackler, so fun to see that different side of him in this game. Alex Neal Bolin, that name does not scream footy. That name screams Premier League. Oh, like a, like, like Trent Alexander-Arnold. Yeah, or Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain. That's such a, that's such a Premier League name. Shocker, hit outs 48 to 26. Brody Grundy versus Bailey J. Williams, self-explanatory. I mentioned Tim Kelly's line already. Andrew Gaff had 24 disposals and 9 tackles. Tom Barris, 17 and 11 intercepts. I mean, he has more opportunities when Jeremy McGovern isn't in the picture, and right now, McGovern isn't in the picture. I'm glad that he has this sort of leadership time with the defensive groove. For some reason, he's he strikes me as being younger than 27. Maybe it's because he only just got to 100 games last year. I remember him kicking. I remember him kicking his first goal in his 100th game was a huge highlight because that was round one before things turned really sour. I mean, things were grim entering round one. I still thought it was manageable against Gold Coast, and then it was a 30-point loss. Okay, so at this point, this game finished a couple hours ago. Geelong Hawthorne, Easter Monday, 65,000 in attendance for what started off as the bottom two teams on the ladder and is now the bottom team and proudly number 13 with that 109.9 percentage. And you know what? It had been raining a decent part of the day too when that came back in the second half. So to get that crowd, but it, it didn't like dump on them like it dumped on Richmond. Okay, but, but still like steady rain throughout... Rain throughout the day before that, including during the curtain raiser, and still 65,000 plus showed up. Man, seeing this scoreline feels, it feels like someone's deceiving me because of what we saw in the first half. Geelong 19-13-127, defeating Hawthorne 6-9-45. I mean, that's feels so good, especially against a team that has given the Cats a lot of trouble the last few years. And we obviously weren't around for... The days of the Kenneth curse and the, and the real drama when Isaac Smith was on the other side and still made Geelong fans happy. I was going to say this is the biggest win over Hawthorne in a really long time, but it was uh, 
Round four in 2017, actually, the Cats beat them by 86. So they beat them by 82 here, which was a point more than that last route that they put on at the G. Um, that one came in September. Jalon trailed 36-27 and a half, and other than a couple minutes at the end of the first quarter, it looked like the same stuff I had seen in prior weeks for the most part. They looked super flat-footed, allowing the first three goals. That was the biggest thing, and even when they were starting to play better, where it was mostly just Jeremy Cameron doing everything and Brian playing pretty well, it was, you know, it was like any handball sequence, they looked like not only flat-footed, but like, like they were playing like on delay, like they were playing an online video game with lag. What's am- What was also amazing is I was I got really scared a little after that third goal, by the way, when Mark Blitzovs went down in the ruck. At first, I did not see that Lloyd Meek had gotten his knee into Blitzovs' ribs and that Blitzovs went down on his own. Yeah, Chris Scott was saying after that that's the sort of stuff that needs to be sniffed out in the game. And I, that, that made me full agreement. You know, it happened to Mason last year. It's just, there was one with Tom DeConing already this year. Like, it's very avoidable. Could ruin Sean Darcy's career. Anyway... Counts outscored Hawthorne 65-0 to in the third quarter, and it was such a refreshing change of pace. It wasn't just, we have more talent. It was, they stopped bombing kicks into the forward 50. It was, you know, shorter entry kicks. They actually won center clearances. Fran Close played like he gave a shit. Patrick Dangerfield decided it was time to stop doing that impression of Cam Newton in the Super Bowl where he didn't go after that thump. I thought that was an impression of Nick Dacos. All jokes aside, it was really nice to see. Okay, you you want me to get on to Collinwood fans about something, though? Um, Look at when the game turned. Look at who entered the game then. Ollie Henry, you know, it's he thrived in that sub role. He came in for Jed Buse, who was concussed, and it seems like Someone dropped the ball on the whole concussion protocol and assessment because he got back on the ground not long after this collision with Connor Nash, who's a really big guy and very low on the list of people I would want to be in a collision with. Who's who's an example of a footy player you want to be in a collision with then? I mean, a small forward, like a a causing picket or something, it would probably be towards that end of, like, you'd survive. I mean, he's strong, but still, imagine being in a Ned Moyle or Ned, imagine being in a Ned Reeves tackle. That dude's big. And Reeves was doing nice things early on in this one again, like he did last year before he got hurt. Yeah, and Jai Newcomb is a pain in the ass to face, but that third quarter, it it felt like a major shift because of the change in how the team was playing. Not just that they were getting the clearances, but that they were finally embracing you know, kicking short and having the forwards come to the ball and Brand Close utilizing his speed, Max Holmes running along the wing, Jack Bowes playing a quietly solid game. I was going to say, I saw I saw one of the things that, that you wrote was that you were surprised to see that Bowes had 10 score involvements. Yeah, I would not have guessed that from like watching the game in real time. He was he was one of those next guys after a stoppage to get possession, and when Geelong got stoppages in their favor, I mean it just it was kind of an avalanche upon Hawthorne at that point. I mean this third quarter was the 
equal 12th biggest third quarter margin in VFL AFL history. Thank you, Max Lawton. The most lopsided shutout quarter since 1980 and the eighth most lopsided shutout quarter ever. Thank you, Swamp. If Gary Rowan had converted that last kick instead of missing everything, it would have been tied for third biggest. And uh, thanks to Daniel Cherney for pointing out that Hawthorne have now been outscored 158 to 11 in third quarters, which is crazy because I think they're a really well-coached team and Sam Mitchell's a really good coach. What I think is happening, I think it's two things. Uh, well, it's something that I had really hit on early last year. It's that they can't pace themselves. It's not like they're too old and they run out of energy. They're one of the youngest teams. Yeah, only one Hawthorne player on their current list has kids. And it's Tyler Brockman who's got twins. I would have guessed, like, Sicily or something. Or Bruce Derwingard, because they're the oldest. Yeah, it's Brockman. But yeah, I would have thought, but I think it's some of that. And then it's some of, they throw this game plan at you, and then most coaches are able to adapt at halftime. And it's tough to counter that when you're just the less talented team. But, like, Sam Mitchell's making you think. I still think he's a damn good coach. They need to find a way to play better second halves. They need to find a way to play better third quarters. I also think the Cats adapted to the way the game was being officiated. Umpires were letting a lot go when it came to pulling on jerseys and stuff. And the moment they started acclimating to that instead of just kind of taking it, just kind of embracing the physicality of the game, it went a lot better because there were some bad ones that they let go. There was... There was a whole clear hold that wasn't called in, in Reese Stanley's favor. Oh, yeah, Ned Reeves was all over him. That was awful. You had, I mean, in the first minute, a push in the back that they gave to Luke Bruce for the first goal. Yeah. It, it, it's one of those tackles that goes hard into the back that we're still not super clear on the rulings of. You had a bunch of them that just, I like to think they took Richard Sherman's advice, though. So Richard Sherman once famously wrote in an email to the rest of his dorm at stanford stop bitching and fucking adapt this email is like archived in full you can find this i highly recommend you do even though deadspin sucks now it's it's still out there and it's great yeah ollie had remade a big impact is it the long sleeves i'm not saying it wasn't uh, patrick dangerfield played an okay first half but he really asserted himself in the third quarter that huge tackle that Dangerville had on Jai Newcomb after what Newcomb did last year to them. That was like a, that's my fucking captain moment. The first this year. I mean, he had a few moments in the Carlton game that were pretty good, but not like, not like that. And then I want to mention, you know, I've been ripping on Cam Guthrie. I still don't think he's playing great, but he was better in this game, even if the disposal efficiency didn't reflect it. He seemed less flat-footed. He seemed more with it, more engaged, more in tune with everyone. And Isaac Smith really utilized his speed in the second half. That was like, it wasn't, you know, grand final performance, but it was pretty damn good. And to be doing this at age 34 is pretty ridiculous. So I'm satisfied. I would like to think they unlocked something where they remembered, hey, this is the style of game that, you know, gets Tom Hawkins opportunities, that gets the whole forward group going instead of just Jeremy Cameron having to carry everybody. I mean, he kicked seven and then carried the boundary umpire into the ground. That whole thing was, I'm really glad 
everyone's okay because now you can laugh at that. But look, we can talk about players being the turning points, changes in strategy, just something clicking. But look, Ethan, we all know what caused this game to change. You can just hold it up in the air for everybody to see. The noodle sign. Yes, the ramen noodle sign. So it turns out Sam Mitchell said after the fact that that sign was for them to kind of play their wet weather style. I think it actually, what I think the message got lost because I think the players saw it as get outscored by 90 for the rest of the game or maybe give effort for another two more minutes, which is about the time it takes for ramen noodles to, to get code. I mean, hey, look, they heated at least a command of the sign because from that point, they ended up playing like wet noodles. It's so interesting. I thought the way the Cats closed first quarter, the Max Holmes goal after the siren, Brad Close keeping the ball in on that was awesome. I said to you then, that could be something that really unlocks him. And then it took another quarter for it to really kick in. And then it was there. Like, if that play had happened at the end of the second and it translated into a big third quarter, it would have been unsurprising. But no, it, it happened at the end of the first. They were lucky to even get any goals in the second quarter. They got one, and then third quarter, it really turned on. And it that second half, I don't expect them to play this well, and they have the fortune of doing it against a pretty shitty team. But I think this game can give you a glimpse of what the 2023 Cats can be. A team that at times is a bit old or slow and has some scoring droughts, but ultimately still, instead of just trying to bomb it into the forward 50, makes the shorter kicks, wins some clearances, and you see the results. And remember, this is still without Sam DeConing and Jack Henry. Holy cow, that's right. So, a lot of positives. First time in like a month I will actually be proudly wearing my 2022 Premier sweatshirt around. This, this is a good feeling. It's the, uh, the Mo Not Today Old Friend gift. Mitch Duncan, first game of the year, 31 disposals. See, this reminds me a bit of 2021, where it's like, man, they really need Mitch Duncan, whereas last year he was just one of many. I'd love for them to find a spot where he can be just one of many, but it, that that can come a few weeks later. Patrick Dangerfield, a goal, 27 disposals, 10 clearances. At halftime, the Cats were down 24 to 10 in clearances, and he had five of them. He had five of those 10 despite not playing well. And then as a team, they won clearances to the third, 14 to four. He gained 504 meters. Max Holmes, they let him play on the wing and look what happened. The goal, 27 disposals, 477 meters. Isaac Smith did not kick a goal. That would have been the great point to stick it to the Hawks. But two behinds, 27 disposals, 468 meters. I've decided the biggest reason I want to beat the Hawks you notice probably like the way they boo Isaac Smith and stuff like, man, they really hate us. And I just want to make them sad because they hate us. Well, right, well, right now they definitely hate them because they ate them. Again, they're going to be really good in a few years time. Sam Mitchell's a really good coach. Get the punches in while you can. Exactly. Grian, the behind 24 disposals and nine score involvements and only one goal assist. But was he was like the well, goal assists are only like will be primary assists in hockey, like the direct setup. He had a few secondaries as well. But in a very bad first half, he was one of the only guys not named Jeremy Cameron that had a good half. And I'd say Asava was mostly good, and he got better as the game went on. He didn't give away too many stupid free kicks. 
Jack Bowes are behind 22 disposals and a quiet 10 score involvements. Jeremy Cameron 7-1 on those 22 disposals and 9 marks. Wish he hadn't kicked that last goal facing him in fantasy. That may be what decides this matchup. Cam Guffrey, 20 disposals and 11 tackles. Tom Atkins, who finally started to turn it on in the second half, 14 disposals and 9 tackles. Remember, one of the reasons this team put away so many games in the fourth quarter last year was some big efforts from Atkins, where you knew he would just get a couple extra tackles, and there was talk about him maybe fitting that captain role, and I'd like to think that this game was him kind of showing, like, even without that official title, the way he can kind of set the tone. 58.1% efficiency inside 50 for the team on a wet day. Also, maybe my favorite stat, one percenters, 54 to 28, which I would not have guessed that. Because when I think of one percenters today, I think of, you know, a couple of nice taps along the boundary that kept plays alive, but nothing else. So, dang. This game may merit more of a rewatch. I'm just, I'm satisfied with the outcome. I'm I'm surprised that, like, Henry and Bose, they had him in the middle of the circle at first after the game, but they didn't, like, give him any sort of a shower and all. I don't know what to say about that. What I do know is that Jarman Impey had 24 disposals and 495 meters gained. He was definitely one of, like, even when they were getting their asses kicked, one of the more prominent Hawks. Josh Warden behind 23 disposals and the recently extended Will Day big of him to get wrapped up when... South Australian teams were really looking to pounce on him. He had 22 disposals and 8 tackles. He's solid. Big that they've locked him up. If they can get Brockman now as well, then I think they'll really have something good just squared away for longer term. Like I've said before, I'm in a weird spot where, like, you know, I haven't been through these super tight finals against the Hawks and stuff. I don't quite hate them, but I want to beat them. They really hate us. And I want to make them sad for that. But I respect what they're building and how they play. And Day is definitely a good part of that. I'm just, I'm glad we kept Jai Newcomb in check. Brockman ended up getting subbed out in this game when I thought he was a spark plug early on. That was to get Chad Wingard in back from injury for the first time since round one. Finn McGinnis was rendered a non-factor. Connor McDonald was all right, but not insane. A couple opportunities for Cam McKenzie to get his first goal that went to waste, unfortunately. James Warple did all right. That's Brian's good friend. I, I'm glad to see him healthier and more involved, but this was not a day that Hawthorne needed. Jolong needed this a lot more, and eventually they, despite some, some struggles, took care of business. So onward and upward. This is normally the part of the show where we give the Mark of the Week and Goal of the Week nominees, but those aren't out yet because of that Monday game. So, I mean, I think we're going to have, we could have a Monday mark in there, uh, one of Jeremy Cameron's. But your round three winners, Ben King with the mark over Asava Radagalea and in front of John Segler. That's not the one I would have gone with. I like Joel Amartes. I thought Amarty was the clear winner there, just leapfrogging. Joel Lombardi over Errol Golden, and I guess Finn McGinnis was on the side of that as well. Just how clean that was, I thought that was going to take. I mean, Kings looked like a more physical act, and also he had had a lot of chances and then finally took one. The Suns actually ended up sweeping those for last week because the goal of the week 
I'm totally in favor of this one being the winner was the Jack Lukosius that was the Jack Lukosius Torp from 62, which was, I mean, I don't think there were any other great options, but Shay Bolton's cool. Jack Caldwell's was all right, but it was the right winner. By by Shea Bolton's standards, that was mid to low tier. But uh, he he had a nice goal in the at the end of this round, at the end of his game this round. Even though it, all it did was cut the deficit to five with about thirty some seconds left, it was still that could end up as a nominee. But uh, we got a lot of choices here for some uh, for some main characters of the round because we've had our picks. Mine didn't show up. I expected more. As Stewart do, I didn't expect. I expected him to be more fiery. I guess, I mean, there's there's a fan. You said you expected it to be a fan on, uh, who was born in 2010 or later, and there was a, a really visible Carlton fan who was really uh, giving a low five and just being really intense during the Good Friday game once the Blues had gotten away. But he's not the main character because if it wasn't for me writing it down, I would have totally forgotten about him by now. Really? Uh, okay, let, let's look at some, some more legitimate contenders then. I think of this week as, like, one of those Simpsons episodes where it's, like, three short stories instead of one main one. Nine short stories about footy? Yeah. You got the umpire-Jeremy Cameron collision. You got the Robin sign on the Hawthorne bench, which I think makes the podium. I think it's number three. I think our number two main character this week has to be a Lear. It seems weird that he's a number two because he, out of, you know, the guys on the ovals, he's obviously number one. But what are, but even with that play being what it was, what are people still talking about? BT saying Colin would have a chance. That's your main character this week. Brian Taylor, congratulations. You've done it. Wowie. Happy birthday. And just, you're never going to give up on your old club, will you? I mean, again, I enjoy him. I think he's great, but he did not do a great job in this game. If the commentators had done more to talk about the wind at the SCG, I think that would have actually been your winner. Again, teams kicking with the wind, outscored teams kicking against the wind, 97 to 33 in that game. Yikes. But yeah, your winner this week has to be Brian Taylor contemplating whether Colin would have a chance. No, not contemplating. He's just was flat out saying. So, uh, yeah, with that, I have a feeling this is going to be a pretty long episode again. I can see this going over two hours with ease. If it has, I think it's mostly been a high quality episode. Maybe a couple times I've rambled a bit, but I think mostly, mostly good stuff. And yeah, we look forward to a very sound effect heavy episode because pretty soon it's going to be time for the gather preview until then find us on twitter and youtube at americans footy find me at benjamin hk01 on twitter find me at castle media and find Brian harambe on instagram at cat named Brian. i tried to keep him in my room for the song at the end of the game and he was not having it and i ended up kind of holding him against his will but it worked out more footy content there and just everywhere with us because that's how we are. Bye bye.